Dear Lord, uh, we come before you, and uh, in Proverbs you tell us to um, seek you with all our heart and acknowledge you, submit to you, and you will make our paths straight. And these are confusing, very difficult, and perhaps even perilous times that we're in, and we don't know um, the best thing to do. So we, we ask you that. We just submit to you and ask that you will make our paths straight. Help us each to know uh, what we're supposed to do uh, in, the, in these times. I pray for Andrew. Thank you for him. Thank you for the preparation he's put in. I pray that you'll work in all of our hearts. Make us sensitive to your Holy Spirit and, and to your word. Help us to be able to learn from him. Uh, he, will, he will speak to us through Andrew. Um, and uh, thank you so much for Hope Point And just pray that you, your continued blessings on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jim, very much. Uh, we're going to be jumping into Philippians 2, back into Philippians 2. We started looking at that a few weeks ago. If you have a copy of Scripture, a device, I just want to invite you to join with me in Philippians 2. I hope you had a good Christmas. Maybe actually now you're in recovery mode from Christmas because it's so exhausting and high energy and all that stuff. Uh, I'm just glad you're here with us uh, this morning to worship and um, to hear from God. Um, our text, we're going to jump right in, our text is one that has been uh, controversial among some Christians, but it's also this really powerful statement about what the Christian journey is like between conversion and the end, glorification, from when we're baptized all the way to when we take our final breath. Paul has this one statement, again, it's caused some questions among some Christians uh, through the years, but it's this one statement that when we understand it, it ends up being a really powerfully guiding truth for our life and for our journey. And the statement is this, we're going to get to it in a minute, but the statement is this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, maybe you come across that statement, depending on your you know, religious background or your tradition, you're like, works, salvation, uh-oh, and you run to another text. I don't know exactly what Paul meant there, and then once you add fear and trembling onto it, I really don't know what Paul meant there, and let's move on quickly. Let's find another verse that feels a little better, maybe a little clearer. Uh, this verse is God's word. It is critical for us, and God intends for us to understand it and to live it out. But in Philippians, Paul gives us a bit of a runway before we lift off into this phrase. He starts in Philippians 1.6, and if you've been around church at all, it probably was a memory verse at some point when Paul says, being confident of this, that God who started a good work in you will complete it. He'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I suspect you've heard that verse. That's how Philippians starts out, with a note of confidence about God's work in us. God started a work. He's not going to give up. He is continuing to work in us for his glory. And so that's how Paul starts. Then a few weeks ago when we jumped into Philippians 2, uh, I just reminded us of that statement, walk worthy of the gospel. God has started a good work in you. Be confident of this. Walk worthy of the gospel. And Paul's already beginning to bring these two grand truths together, that God is at work and we should be too. That is what sets us up for this uh, beautiful passage that we come to this morning. And it is a beautiful passage. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, 
not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. He's left. He's actually in prison. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, and boy, that's a small little word, but that's an important little word. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I want us to just soak in that this morning. And the first thing I just want us to think about is this great truth. Don't wait. God is working in you. God is working, so don't wait. Let's, let's start at the end, verse 13, where Paul says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act. God is working in you. You can be absolutely certain, and it should, like Paul said in Philippians 1, give us a great confidence that God started a work in salvation in us, and he is not giving up. And Paul says he works on the inside to will. He's working in us to will and to act. The will refers to our inner being. Uh, Paul means a lot more than what we mean. The word will for us is kind of a narrow word. For him, it's a big word. Will has to do with our desires, what we seek after, what we live our lives for. The will also includes our affections, what we love and what we hate. Our will includes what we call our will, what we choose and what we reject. It includes also our thoughts, what we think about, what we choose to think about, and even our emotions, how we feel about that. Our will, according to Scripture, is such a powerful part of us, frankly, what we want, what we will, is usually the most powerful thing about us. What we want will control our use of time, our money, our relationships. And Paul says God is working on your will. God's working on your wanter. That aspect of you. God is there working on that in you. When we are saved God begins to revolutionize this wanter. You've experienced this. So that, for instance, we begin to seek first the kingdom of God instead of our own. That was the trajectory we were on. That was our life. My kingdom. I like my kingdom. And now God begins to revolutionize our wanter so that we're willing to abandon our own desires for his kingdom. Or he begins to work on our affections, our desires, so that we love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, everything that we are, that we love God. He works, God is working to revolutionize us on the inside, but not just the inside. Paul says, to will and to act. God is working in our habits and our behaviors and our words and our actions, how we use these bodies. God is very interested in how we use our bodies for him. He says to will and to work for his good pleasure. All through this passage, we realize there's nothing easy about the Christian life. And I don't know how you came to faith in Christ, but there's a certain kind of gospel presentation that says something like this. God is so great, he loves you, he'll save you, just trust him. And that's about it. 
And when it comes to being converted, that's all that's necessary. It's amazing. It's profound among world faiths. Simply repent, own your sin, and put all your faith in God, declaring, I can do nothing to earn this salvation, to get this salvation. I can do nothing. But this Christian life, this text in particular, this Christian life reminds us that there is nothing leisure about the Christian life. It's not something that's just comfortable and cool. It is, Paul will say, work. God is working, so work out your own salvation. At times we feel that this work is like a war. We're warring against ourselves. What we want so oftentimes doesn't match what God wants, and there's this war, and Paul says, that's God. Be confident. That's God working in you, and he's working in us for his good pleasure. We should just remember here on this last Sunday of this year, as we look at 2021, happy to be done with 2020, as we look forward, we should be reminded that the reason we were created is for God's good pleasure. That God is doing everything for his own good pleasure. That Christ has redeemed us for his good pleasure. Christian theologians from Augustine, probably before that, all the way through Edwards and even modern theologians, have reminded us again and again in good ways that actually we find our greatest, fullest pleasure when we abandon pursuing our own pleasure. And find our, we find our pleasure when we pursue with a certain kind of abandonment the pleasure of God. And Paul is saying, this is what God is doing. God is working on your heart. He's working in your mind. He's working on your affections. He wants your will. He's working and shaping and reshaping for his good pleasure. <clears throat> Indeed, one of the things that God is working to do is to liberate us from the slavery of living for our own pleasure. So what this means for us, if God is working, there's no reason for us to wait we should work out our own salvation. But one of the really important things that this reminds us is that there's no room for pride when it comes to Christian progress. I bet you look back at this last year, and if you're honest and still humble, you can notice areas of growth in your life. These circumstances of 2020 have exposed some things in you, and now there, there's been growth. You have thought about it, you've prayed about it, and you've worked out your salvation. There's growth there. And this Little phrase in verse 13 reminds us there is no room for human pride. We can't look back at our progress and say, ah, look at what I did. The reason is because God is at work. God is working in us. So then what should we do? There is a temptation. We've heard the verse already this morning, but there is a temptation to think, my growth, <clears throat> this great work, it's all up to God, so I'll wait on him. And that feels very spiritual. That's not what Paul says. Or God is at work in you, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray about it. Prayer is more important than we even know, but that's not what Paul says here. Or we might say in our information age, and praise God for Amazon, um, we can order a book about a topic that we want to grow in. God is at work through Amazon of all things, and now I can get a book tomorrow. In fact, I can get it digitally in two minutes, and I can you know, start reading a book. He doesn't say, so read, so join another study. 
There's also a temptation to think, man, if God is at work, you know what I need to do. I just need to let go of it all and just let God. Again, that feels spiritual. It's just not what the Bible says. Because the Bible says this, very simply, four little words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is not saying work for your salvation. That is abundantly clear from Paul, all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the Bible. You could never earn, this is insulting, I know, sorry, sort of. You could never earn your salvation. You could never work hard enough to earn God's favor and a right standing before God. The Bible goes out of its way to persuade us of that. You can't work for your salvation. And Paul is not saying work on your salvation as if God has left something le- uh, lacking and now it's for you to work on. He says work it out. And it's a command. It's not an option. Paul's looking at Christians and saying this is an exhortation from God Almighty. Work out your salvation. It, he's saying make this gracious salvation that Christ has given to you free of charge. Make this become more evident all through your life. Make this radical work of grace that God has begun in you through faith, through empty-handed faith, make this radical work of grace more and more evident all through your life, or as I titled the sermon, become who you are. Hey, you say, wait, wait, how, how does that work? If you are, become who you are? Well, it is true, and it's true for this reason. It's, the, it's true for the reason that, that the Scripture will call us saints. If you've put faith in the Holy God and received the Holy Spirit, you are saints, declared saints, whether you feel like it or not. It's amazing. You're saints. And at the same time, the Scripture will call us to be holy. Those two words are related. They come from the same root word. Be saint. You are saints, be holy, become more of who you are. Paul is recognizing, the scripture recognizes this process of growth. And what Paul is going to say is, it's work. Work out your salvation. I hesitate to illustrate this because all illustrations break down when you start talking about these in terms of spiritual truths and try to illustrate them. But salvation is a bit like a muscle. And what Paul means is a bit like what we mean when we're talking about working out, something that you might be interested more in doing in 2021, January 1st. Maybe you've got that goal, that target. You're going to work out more. Salvation is a bit like a muscle. There's so much potential there, but you have to work it out. I didn't create the muscle. God made it. It's there. I didn't create the potential for the muscle, but I can apply some resistance, weights or bands or gravity or whatever. I can apply some resistance and make that muscle be much more present. I can apply some resistance and make that muscle be much more obvious. Working out your salvation means doing the hard work of making God's radical work of grace more and more obvious in my life, in my words, in my actions, in my priorities, in my values, in how I spend my time, and how I spend my money, and what I choose to watch, and who I choose to follow, and how I choose to communicate, the whole bit. It's this massive statement. Work out your salvation. In the gym... In the gym, athletes don't just build muscle mass. Depending on their sport, 
Athletes are especially keen to build muscle memory. Not just muscle mass, it's not just about strong, but muscle memory. So that their muscles and tendons and bones, and Dr. Evans could tell you much more about how all that works after the service if you so desire, but muscles and bones and tendons and the whole bit. The more we apply this resistance in very specific ways, the more muscle memory we build so that by reflex, by habit, by instinct, I can shoot that jump shot or swing that golf club with more precision or consistency or whatever. What Paul is getting after when he talks about working out your salvation, he's talking about getting that radical work of grace all the way out to your fingertips. It's not easy. It takes work. It takes habits. It takes intentionality. It takes discipline. And it also takes accountability. So throughout the Bible, we learn that when it comes to living the Christian life, we cooperate fully in this. We can't just delegate it to God. You know, God, you're powerful. It feels spiritual. It feels good. You're so powerful. You know what? I'm just going to leave my growth up to you. God says, that's wonderful that you pray. That's wonderful that you trust me. That's wonderful that you declare that I am all powerful. That's good. Now, don't just leave it to me. Engage fully in this. And don't just cooperate with God. Don't just engage with God. Work out your salvation. God is working in you, so be working it out. And what this looks like, Paul actually gives us an indication in the verse. Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. He's saying the same thing. To work out your salvation is to intentionally obey Christ. And Paul is hearkening back to the Great Commission. We remember that. I probably make disciples, baptize them. And then do you remember the third bit? Sometimes we forget this. Train them to obey all that I have commanded. Train new Christians. We need training. And we always need training. To obey. We might as well say with Paul, make disciples, baptize them, and train them to work out this salvation in obedience. So why then does Paul say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why put it that way? Well, at the least, Paul is saying, there is nothing flippant or shallow about this process. It's not just about running into the gym and doing a workout and getting on with life. No, there's a, there's a certain kind of soberness and seriousness that is required here. Paul is speaking here about a kind of quivering, knee-knocking reverence for God. And I think what's happening is this. If we hear Paul say, work out your salvation, we should feel like hikers at the base of the Himalayas looking up. And we think to ourselves rightly, when we hear work out our salvation, we should think to ourselves rightly, that task is monumental, not simple. That task is breathtaking. It'll take my breath away. Because it is. To work out this radical work of grace that God has begun in our hearts, to work it out so that it gets all the way to my fingertips, all the way to my words, it requires this kind of honest, sober, serious attention. Even as we, like those hikers, would look at the trail and say, 
here we go. We're not going to let that and that fear and that appropriate awe of the task, we're not going to let that hinder us from going on that journey. But we go on that journey with a kind of knee-knocking, quivering respect for the path ahead. Some of that is because we know how great God is, and some of that is because we know how broken we still are and how much work there still is to do. So let me just remind us again, I, I indicated it already, I just need to remind us of this, especially in this information age, this communication age. Paul does not say, read out your salvation as if you can just read enough about salvation for it to just magically happen. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, pray out your salvation as if all you must do is close yourself away and pray. Now, I have to plead guilty on this one, and maybe you do too. I should pray more about more of this. So prayer needs to be a part. I don't want to diminish this. But it's not simply a matter of praying more. Nor does he say, talk out your salvation as if all you need to do is talk about what you're learning with other Christians. All those are good. All those are valuable. All those are necessary at some point. But Paul goes further. Work out your salvation. I love how Andy Davis, a pastor in North Carolina, puts it. The final test of godliness is action. God intends to move us, all of us. Now, if you're a student, a youth in our, in our ministry here, let me just address this for you, for your benefit. Because Paul in verse 12, he sounds a bit like a parent. And... I think it's a really helpful application for us because that is what he is. For these Christians here, notice what he says, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence when I was with you planting the church, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. Students, I just want to encourage you with this. Your parents, believe it or not, are looking forward to the day to launch you out into this world. You think you're looking for it, and all that freedom that seems so dazzling, I don't want to take away your joys, but the responsibility quickly comes rushing in with all that freedom. But what your parents want and what maturity looks like in the Christian life is whether mom and dad are present or absent, you just keep working out your salvation. You keep attending to this, asking yourself. You take it upon yourself. This is maturity. Taking upon yourself to ask yourself the question, how else do I need to be obeying? What other area does this salvation need to extend to in my life more deliberately, more intentionally? Work out your salvation because God is working in you. As I indicated, a good workout, when it comes to the gym, a good workout requires a plan It requires discipline. Whether I feel like it or not, I'm going to keep after it. But it also requires accountability. And I would just encourage you, perhaps if you find yourself still struggling in the same old ways, first of all, you're a broken human like the rest of us, and there's going to continue to be a fight all the way to the grave. But there is such need for us to have the kind of accountability where others are around us, we give them permission to both care and encourage us, to spur us on to this obedience, but then also to ask us those hard questions and say hard things when we need that. That's 
what accountability is, and that's what we all need. I would encourage you, if you don't have that, to look for that, to find that, to get that in your life. Now, the most amazing thing to me about this passage is that Paul has a very specific area that we need to work out our salvation. I don't know how the Spirit is moving in your heart. There's different ways that God wants to lead us and work out our salvation, but there's one specific way for all of us that God wants to work out this salvation in us, and it is this next passage. Verses 14 and 15. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. This is the next verse. This is where Paul goes. From the grandiose, work out your salvation, God is at work in you, to this very specific need. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that two results that we'll look at this morning, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And you notice this is in quotes from Deuteronomy. So one result is you'll become blameless and pure. The second one is, then you will shine among them, the crooked generation, like stars. The third thing that I want to just point out this morning is this. As you work out your salvation, start with your words. Start there in your mouth. Work out, continue to work out this radical, beautiful work of grace, revolutionary work of grace. Work it out in your words. Our mouths need salvation. They need constant work. This is a place in your nouns and verbs to work out God's gracious salvation. Before I get into these two exhortations, let me just remind us of something that Jesus says in Matthew 14, that you'll give account for every word, every careless word. You'll give account. Sometimes God thinks more about our words than we think about our words. James 3 says that when you learn, if you ever learn to manage your tongue, to really get in control of your tongue, you have become a perfect person. The book of Proverbs, as you probably know, is jammed with at least 60 different warnings about our words. I say all that to say this, that when it comes to arguing and complaining, there are sins that we get comfortable with. Jerry Bridges, who did campus ministry for all of his career, passed away a few years ago. He, he came to call these respectable sins. They're not good, but they're not horrible. That's how we tend to feel about arguing and complaining. Or maybe it's just me who feels that way about them. It seems to be a lesser sin. Okay, yeah, it's in the Bible, but, you know, really? Yes, really. Paul says, as we avoid, in everything that we do, as we avoid arguing and complaining, we become blameless and pure. And he's talking about this relationship with God. Before God, you're blameless and pure, the faultless family of God in a warped and crooked generation. As I said, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy. Paul wants us to remember the story of Israel. And do you remember it? It was not pretty. It was a story of complaining. And if you want to, go back and read just how much God despised their complaining. It's a big deal to God. So before God, we are blameless and pure as we work out our salvation in our words. And in the world, we are, we are shining stars, the text says. It's a crooked and warped generation. Paul's very honest. 
he's not any more bleak than we should be. Like it's a fallen and broken world. And he says, when you attend to your words and avoid arguing and complaining, you are like brilliant lights among the darkness. And I'm not exactly sure why Paul chose that analogy. Except that it's, it's shining, it's brilliant, it's, it's amazing to behold, perhaps he's saying that. Maybe he's saying that the ancients used to make a big deal about stars. They would look at them, they would gaze at them. And it would become so attractive, Christians going through their suffering without arguing, complaining, would be so attractive, like a brilliant star in a dark sky. Before God, blameless and pure, in the world, shining stars. So Paul says, never grumble. Now, I was really glad to have the privilege of, of learning Greek, too much Greek. Greek is the underlying language of the New Testament. And when you dig into this word, what you learn is that when Paul says, don't grumble, don't complain, he means don't grumble or complain. That's all he means. It's, it's very clear. Like, there's no wiggle room here. And if you remember the story of these Philippians, these Christians had something to grumble about. At least it feels like it to us. They were under heightened scrutiny by government officials who could take their freedom, take their property, throw them in jail, maybe even kill them. To these Christians, in that context, Paul says, never grumble, never ever. And to Christians in 2020, before you think, ah, there is some justification to grumble in 2020, there's not. Do everything without grumbling. Grumbling declares, <clears throat> when I grumble, I am declaring God is not good. At least not good in the way I want or deserve. When I choose to grumble, I am declaring that God is not wise. I know what is better. Grumbling, when I choose to grumble, I am declaring God is not sovereign. He is somehow stymied and incapable of changing this circumstance. <laughs> what a tragedy for us to feel that way and voice that. Of course, the opposite of this grumbling and complaining is contentment. Seeing the good and being overjoyed in the good. And not just seeing it and feeling contented, but actually voicing it. Expressing gratitude and thanksgiving. Make that your plan, I would encourage you. Curb your complaining with gratefulness. And remember, grumbling is voiced discontentment. Gratitude is voiced contentment. This, as I say, there's a faint echo here from the story of Israel. The story of Israel was a story of complaining, and God had no place for it. He made the point clear to Israel. Paul says, remember this and let it be clear to you. There is never any room for complaining. It might be valuable for you this afternoon before you turn on the football game. It might be valuable to ask yourself, what are the top three things that I complain about? Again, just ask your spouse. They'll help you if, if it's really hard to come up with that list. Uh, what are the top three things? Uh, your boss, your manager, leaders. Leaders are always easy to complain about. It's like they're just sitting 
ducks out there. Easy to complain about them. Maybe it's a, a child, a spouse. Maybe it's a relative who's in town for Christmas. Paul says, never grumble. Never grumble about anything in any circumstance. Never grumble. And then he says, just last, he says, never argue. Now, unlike grumbling that's very, very clear, this is not. You know the word here. The word is dialogue. That is the word here, dialogue. And it shows how slippery this is. When does a dialogue descend into a sinful argument? I asked my wife that this week, and she said that I am uniquely qualified to speak on this topic <laughs> because I too easily go right, right across that line. Well, there's no substitute for walking in the Spirit and listening to how the Spirit is guiding us when we're in dialogue. But let me just suggest a few things. When our respectful dialogue becomes disrespectful attacks, obviously, we've crossed the line. We need to confess it. When I begin to devalue the other person and even be willing to humiliate them, now I'm choosing to sin. When my commitment to prove myself right becomes ultimate. When I reduce the other person to our point of disagreement, that's the only thing I can see about the other person. They disagree with me on this. When I stop working hard to actually listen instead of just planning comebacks. When I think of my brother or sister in Christ as my enemy. When my calm gives way to anger. Or, as Romans 14 reminds us, when I am no longer welcoming or hospitable to those who disagree. Romans 14 explicitly says, welcome those who disagree. Show hospitality to those. And Paul's talking about some very serious theological differences in Romans 14. He says, welcome them. Of course, when it comes to arguing, one of the special challenges that we have is, <clears throat> how do I stop and restart? Because the relationship has been defined by this arguing. So how do I stop and restart without arguing? Well, I don't have any specific tricks. But in the Christian journey, the way to always restart anything is by humble confession. So that whether it's your spouse, whether a friend at work, whether a brother or sister in this congregation that you go back and say, you know, at times when we have dialogued, I have sinned and started arguing. I'm wrong when I do that. Would you please forgive me? That would be at least a start. Well, God is working in you. What a treasure this is. What a gift of God's grace to keep working in us. So never stop, brothers and sisters, never stop. Never give up working out your salvation. And start with your words. Make it your commitment as you work out your salvation to make that beautiful, radical work of grace evident in your words so that you avoid grumbling, that you never argue. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for this word that you have given to us. It is our desire that the words of our mouths the thoughts of our heart would be pleasing 
in your sight, Lord God. I ask you that you would give us the diligence, help us to make it a priority to work out this incredible salvation. And we just want to pause and say thank you. Thank you that your grace is so full and so free. Thank you that no matter how we have disappointed you and fallen and sinned, that you don't give up working in us. We just want to say thank you. Thank you for being so kind, so gracious. And I pray, Lord, that we would respond to your work of grace in this way, that we'll work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In the name of our Savior Christ, I pray. Amen.